Welcome to episode 47 of History of the Marine Corps, the Battle of New Orleans. Our last episode discussed the British invasion of Washington. It wasn't a shining moment for the United States, but the Marines were commended for their action against the British. This episode gets into the Battle of New Orleans. We'll discuss troop movement by both the British and the United States, and review how the two countries prepare for battle. We also get into the peace treaty and the complications of negotiating between the two countries. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. The defeat at Washington was an eye-opener for the United States. It was clear that the U.S. didn't have the necessary defenses to protect against an attacking enemy. Three days after the invasion, British forces targeted Fort Washington. As we discussed a couple of episodes back, the Secretary of the Navy wanted Captain Miller's Marines to help guard Fort Washington. Jones selected Marines explicitly because of their experience in multiple disciplines that would greatly benefit this battle. Marines were proficient in artillery warfare, naval warfare, and ground combat. These skills are useful when defending against attacks from land and sea. But General Winder didn't think the fort was that important, and Captain Miller and his Marines stayed in the city. British Commodore James Alexander Gordon received orders to take his fleet up the Potomac and attack the fort. Despite numerous warnings and suggestions from military leaders, Fort Washington's defenses were never improved, and the fort couldn't handle the British. Fort Washington only had 27 cannons and 60 men. When the British fleet closed in, Gordon positioned his bomb vessels and started attacking the fort. Gordon was anticipating some defense, but the fort never fired back. For two hours, the British bombarded the stronghold. United States Army Captain Samuel Dyson oversaw the fort. He was in charge only 10 days before the attack. He heard rumors that the British Army was marching towards Fort Washington at the same time the British fleet was sailing towards their location. Dyson was aware of the British's repeated use of pincer maneuvers and anticipated an attack from land and sea. He gathered his officers, and they voted to desert the fort. The men spiked the guns and lit the 3,000 pounds of gunpowder. The battle only lasted two hours before Dyson fled. He was court-martialed for abandoning his post and destroying government property. Historians question his court-martial. Yes, Dyson fled, but 60 men weren't enough to properly defend against an advancing army and navy. Historian and author George Don said it best in his book, 1812, The Navy's War, quote, The entire blame for the fiasco was placed on him, not on the Secretary of War and the President where it belonged, unquote. Without Fort Washington in the way, Alexandria was wide open for the British, and on August 29th, Gordon took a position in the nearby wharves. Throughout this whole war, Madison made little attempt to harden the defenses of towns near Washington. It wasn't different for Alexandria. The city asked for more weapons and ammunition to prepare for the advancing British. 
Washington promised Alexandria additional supplies, but none came. The town didn't even have militiamen to help defend. With little option, city leaders surrendered to Gordon and hoped for clemency. Gordon agreed to leave Alexandria alone if they provided resources and 21 prize ships filled with sugar, wine, tobacco, and other supplies. The city agreed, and the United States faced another embarrassing defeat, along with the loss of multiple vessels and goods. The surrender and ease of loss were unacceptable to the United States. Two days after the attack, the Secretary of the Navy ordered Commodore Rogers to move towards Bladensburg with 650 sailors and Marines. Their orders were to, quote, annoy or destroy the enemy on his return down the river, unquote. They were attempting to stop the British from leaving the Potomac with their ransom. Master Commandant Oliver Hazard Perry met with Rogers and arrived in Bladensburg on the 31st. He was ordered to head to Mount Vernon, a few miles south of his location, and stand up a battery near a plantation they identified as the White House. While Perry was engaging with the enemy, Rogers would attack the retreating fleet with fire ships. The two forces attacked the British, but it didn't stop the flotilla from escaping. Porter reported that he, quote, proceeded with the detachment of sailors and marines under his command to the White House on the west bank of the Potomac. Of the conduct of the sailors and marines, I deem it unnecessary to say anything. Their conduct on all such occasions has ever been uniform, unquote. He goes on to say, Captain Alfred Grayson of the Marines is a brave and zealous officer. He had volunteered to come with his detachment under me at Baltimore. Those veterans, who so much distinguished themselves under their gallant, though unfortunate, commander at Bladensburg, were all willing to try another battle. They have been, again, unsuccessful, but no less courageous, two of them having fallen. Unquote. But the British weren't done yet. And while the United States tried to stop the fleet that attacked Alexandria, another British squadron was preparing to move up the Chesapeake and attack Baltimore. Secretary of the Navy Jones ordered Rogers to return to Baltimore and protect the city. Rogers took his sailors and marines and sailed for his destination. He met up with U.S. Army General Samuel Smith. Marine First Lieutenant Joseph L. Kuhn led the marines in Baltimore. Around 200 sailors and marines operated artillery east of the city. On September 11th, 9,000 British landed at the mouth of the Patapsco. Lieutenant Kuhn and his marines from the Guerriere were posted in the trenches between the artillery. The start of the battle was looking good for the United States. American forces were able to push back the British and even kill British Commander Major General Robert Ross. With Ross dead, Colonel Arthur Brooke took charge, and he launched a frontal assault and flanked the attacking Americans. And the British were able to push through and head towards Baltimore, and eventually Fort McHenry. When the British arrived at Fort McHenry, they launched an estimated 1,500 to 1,800 cannonballs at the fort, but little damage was done. British forces overestimated the strength of United States forces. They thought reinforcements were more substantial than they were, and British forces withdrew and prepared for their final assault on the United States. Francis Scott Key was at the battle. 
His original mission was to secure a prisoner exchange. While they boarded a British ship for the trade, the Baltimore attack plans commenced, and they were held captive. He wrote a poem about this event titled, Defense of Fort McHenry. This poem will later become the Star-Spangled Banner. Commodore Rogers applauded the Marines. Quote, To the officers, seamen, and Marines of the Guerriere, considering the privations they experienced and the cheerfulness and zeal with which they encountered every obstacle, every acknowledgement is due, and it would be impossible for me to say too much in their praise. Unquote. The Secretary of the Navy was worried that the British would head to Philadelphia next, and he ordered Rogers, with his sailors and Marines, to head to Delaware. When the Battle of Baltimore was taking place, the talk of peace started in Belgium. The United States wanted this war to end, but British victories, mostly the fall of Washington, gave Britain the upper hand, and the United States extraordinarily little negotiating power. Fortunately, Europe was going through some problems with Napoleon gone. The four great countries in Europe, Britain, Austria, Prussia, and Russia were fighting for the power Napoleon left behind. Although none of this was public knowledge at the time, the four authorities' main concern was that Russia had control of Poland. Tsar Alexander wanted the country's constitution to read that it wasn't an independent nation, but a state controlled by Russia. Austria and Britain were against this demand. Prussia went along with Russia, but it wasn't out of loyalty. It was more out of greed and fear. Prussia was influenced by Tsar Alexander, and they weren't going to go against him without something in return. They wanted Saxony before they sided with Britain and Austria. Britain wanted to refocus its resources on the United States. And they did do that to some extent, but now their focus was on Europe, and the demands British once held firm were now negotiable. But leaders in Britain never passed that word to the negotiators. The United States negotiation team consisted of John Quincy Adams, Albert Gallatin, Henry Clay, and James Bayard. They sat and listened to the British discuss three major topics in this negotiation. The first being impressing American citizens into the British military. Second, they wanted to establish a Native American buffer state. And third, they wanted to revise the boundaries between the U.S. and British colonies. They also discussed fishing rights, and Britain would no longer allow the U.S. to fish in Newfoundland without the U.S. allowing Britain to fish in the Mississippi River. After hearing Britain's terms for peace, the U.S. negotiation team headed back to their rooms and discussed how they would reply to the terms. As they were brainstorming, a letter came in from Secretary of State Monroe. It said, quote, on mature consideration, it has been decided that under all circumstances alluded to, incident to a prosecution of the war, you may omit any stipulation on the subject of impressment, if found indispensably necessary to terminate it. Unquote. Talk about a 180. One of the main reasons we went to war was because of impressment. Now the Secretary of State gave the negotiation team the option of accepting the British's position on impressing American citizens. But with Napoleon out of the picture, impressment wasn't necessary anymore. So the issue that caused the war was no longer a primary concern for both countries. But despite this being the case, neither one of the countries wanted to sway from their positions. 
There was also a lot of talk about land. Britain wanted a large section of North America dedicated as Native American territory. The land would stretch throughout the Northwest and include U.S. property. One-third of Ohio, two-thirds of Indiana, and almost the entire region of what is now Illinois, Wisconsin, and Michigan. This move would prohibit the United States' growth and provide a new trading partner for the British. There wasn't much wiggle room for this term during the start of negotiations. The British demanded that the U.S. must include this requirement in the treaty or they would not sign it. I think it goes without saying that the U.S. didn't agree to those terms. On August 25th, the United States formally rejected the stipulation of a Native American state. This back and forth went on for almost a month. Americans would refuse Britain's terms, and Britain would reply with no changes to the peace treaty. On September 19th, the British sent another letter, but this time, the Native American buffer state wasn't included in the terms. Things were starting to look promising for the United States, but on September 27th, the news of Washington falling reached London. Britain knew they had the upper hand, and this changed the negotiations. When the story made the papers, British negotiator Goldburn brought in the newspaper and he gave it to the American negotiators. On October 8th, Britain sent another letter with their negotiation terms. This time, all the previous demands were included, as well as questions about the Louisiana Purchase. The United States had little bargaining power, and Adams wrote to his wife, quote, There can be no possible advantage to us in continuing to negotiate any longer. Unquote. With negotiations stalled and Britain's confidence up, Parliament decided, quote, to proceed in the first instance to the northward and to occupy Rhode Island, where they propose remaining and living upon the country until about November 1st. They will then proceed southward, destroy Baltimore, if they should find it practicable without too much risk, occupy several important points on the coast of Georgia and the Carolinas, take possession of Mobile in Florida, and close the campaign with an attack on New Orleans, unquote. 2,200 additional troops were sent to New Orleans to help with the fight. The British strength was now 10,000. While Britain was making its move towards New Orleans, they attacked Plattsburgh, Fort Erie, and participated in smaller skirmishes in other locations. The United States were victorious in these battles, and when the news reached London, Britain's negotiating power lessened. Henry Clay wrote to Monroe that the winds were of great importance. Quote, for in our own country, my dear sir, at last we have conquered the peace. Unquote. When the news reached the newspapers, Clay did precisely what Goldburn did and brought a copy for him to review. When British citizens heard the news, they were upset. They thought war with the United States was coming to an end. But the recent events in Baltimore and other locations didn't seem like that was the case. Europe was at war for a long time, and citizens wanted it over. They were also dealing with Paris. With Napoleon out of the picture, there was an open seat for someone else to step up and take control. Britain had 40,000 troops in Belgium, staged for a potential war with France should things escalate. They also had Russia's dominion over Poland to deal with as well. The tables have turned again, and now the United States had the upper hand. British negotiators sent a letter stating, quote, 
I see little prospect of our negotiations at Ghent ending in peace. The continuance of the American war will entail upon us a prodigious expense, much more than we had any idea of. Unquote. Concerned about Paris escalating, Britain asked the Duke of Wellington to take command in North America. But after a lot of back and forth, it was determined that he would be more valuable in Europe should another war break out. He also provided honest feedback to the conflict and the peace negotiation terms. Quote, I confess that I think you have no right, from the state of the war, to demand any concession of territory from America. You have not been able to carry the war into the enemy's territory. Notwithstanding your military success and now undoubted military superiority, and have not even cleared your own territory on the point of attack. You cannot, on any principle of equality, in negotiation claim a cession of territory, accepting in exchange for other advantages which you have in your power. Why stipulate for Utai Posaditis, which is just a peace treaty based on the land that the armies currently occupy? You can get no territory. Indeed, the state of your military operations, however credible, does not entitle you to demand any. Unquote. Britain sent a final treaty to the Americans. The treaty didn't have anything about fishing rights in Newfoundland or the Mississippi. There wasn't anything about impressment, and the treaty didn't discuss the buffer state for Native Americans. The treaty called for the territory of the two belligerents to be restored to what it was before the war. On December 22nd, the treaty was agreed upon by both parties and signed on Christmas Eve. The diplomats from each country celebrated by having Christmas dinner together. But the news of this treaty would not reach North America in time, and British forces continued towards New Orleans. This attack wouldn't be the first time New Orleans had to defend itself from the British, and Marines played an essential role in many of those battles. At the beginning of December, Commander of Naval Forces in New Orleans, Commodore Daniel T. Patterson, received word that a British fleet was on its way. The Battle of New Orleans was commencing. He sent five gunboats to gather information. Marines served on those gunboats and were commanded by Lieutenant Thomas A.C. Jones. The British would send about 50 barges, carrying over 1,000 men to destroy those gunboats. Ten Americans were killed and 35 wounded during this battle. Marines in gunboat 156 took the brunt of this damage, and five Marines were killed in a single gunboat. The British had 17 killed and 77 wounded. The battle resulted in Jones being captured, and he was questioned about the strength of the U.S. Army at New Orleans. The British started to set up a base 30 miles from the city, but the logistics of this setup wasn't ideal. The location didn't contain trees, which was an important resource at the time. It was also populated with alligators and snakes. Everything was wet, it rained constantly, and the British didn't have tents or any other shelter to use. To top it off, the British didn't have enough boats to carry the massive army to camp, so multiple trips were made. But once settled, they prepared for their attack. Three strategies were proposed. One was to head up Wrigley's Pass and come out two miles north of the city. But this passage was shallow, and the British didn't have the resources to pull off this approach. The second strategy involved taking smaller boats 
and rowing the plane of gently to Regalis Pass, but the Americans anticipated this move and had the passage blocked. The third route, and the one that was selected, focused on the tip of the boot of Louisiana. It went through the Bayou Bienvenue, Bayou Mazant, and finally the Villery Canal, putting the army seven miles from New Orleans. 1,600 British soldiers would make their way to Bienvenue, but the British didn't have enough transportation for all of them, and they had to make three trips. The British arrived at their first stop on December 22nd and headed to the Mississippi River's edge, a mile away, on the 23rd. Like many other battles during this war, the Americans had little intelligence, and they didn't know the British were so close to New Orleans. On the 23rd, General Andrew Jackson finally received word of the British's location and gathered 1,500 men to help defend. Commodore Patterson received a request from Jackson to anchor near Britain's camp and bombard their campsite. While the army moved into position, the Carolina sailed to the British's flank. Before she opened fire, Patterson, commander of the Carolina, could clearly be heard from shore saying, quote, Now then, give it to them for the honor of America. Unquote. The Carolina bombarded the British. The enemy tried to return fire with Congreve rockets, but shots were ineffective. They were caught off guard and they started to flee. General Andrew Jackson, along with his soldiers, an artillery detachment, and a force of Marines, followed the Mississippi River with the main attacking party and flanked the British on their right. The British advanced towards the Marines. Quote, the artillerist advanced up the levee road with the Marines when the British made a desperate attempt to seize their guns. There was a fierce struggle. Jackson saw it. And hastening to the spot, in the midst of a shower of bullets, he shouted, Save the guns, my boys, at any sacrifice. Unquote. Major Latour wrote that he saw General Jackson, quote, in advance of all who were near him at a time when the enemy was making a charge on the artillery, spiriting and urging on the Marines, who, animated by the presence and voice of their gallant commander-in-chief, attacked the enemy so briskly that they soon forced him to retire. Unquote. While Jackson and his force were attacking the British on their right, John Coffey flanked the British on their left. With ground units in position, the Carolina stopped her bombardment. This battle wasn't easy, and both sides fought in the dark, hand to hand. It lasted only about 30 minutes before a thick fog rolled in. It was hard to see, and at 2200, Andrew Jackson fell back for the night. The British did not follow Jackson and his army. The brunt of the initial attack caused so much damage that the British thought this force was 5,000 strong. During this short confrontation, the British had 46 killed and 167 wounded, and 64 missing, compared to the United States with 24 dead, including Marine Privates John C. Ward and Michael McCarty, 115 wounded, including Marine Lieutenants Bellevue and Thompson, and 74 missing. The Carolina was giving the British hell. She took advantage of every opportunity she had to bombard the enemy. For the British to avoid constant bombardment, the Carolina needed to be destroyed. A few days after the surprise attack, British soldiers spotted two American ships, 
the Louisiana, and the Carolina. They tried firing at her with heavy artillery from shore. This time, the Carolina wouldn't escape. The British fired heated shots. This tactic worked, and the schooner caught on fire. The men on the ship boarded the smaller boats and rowed to shore. The fire eventually reached the gunpowder, and the ship exploded. The Louisiana was so close to the Carolina that burning pieces of the ship fell onto her deck. On December 28th, the enemy planned on taking New Orleans. Every night, Jackson sent snipers to British outposts, and they picked off British sentries. This tactic's effectiveness angered the British, and Pakenham objected to this approach. But the U.S. wouldn't stop. Instead, Jackson mocked this reply and reminded the British that they were invading another country. British soldiers advanced on General Jackson's position, but the Louisiana took the Carolina's place and provided devastating fire. Marine Major Carmick was severely wounded during this battle. Alexander Walker stated, quote, That gallant officer, Major Carmick of the Marine Corps, was among the wounded. Whilst delivering an order to Major Plosh near the center of the American line, he was struck by a rocket, which tore his horse to pieces and wounded the Major in the arm and head, unquote. The United States would have nine killed and eight wounded during this battle. The Louisiana took the Carolina's role of antagonizing the British, and her accurate and consistent firing caused the British to delay their invasion until January 8th. At dawn, the British fired a Congreve rocket, which was the signal to commence the attack. The United States instantly answered back, and Battery No. 6, which was positioned next to Lieutenant Bellevue and his company of 66 Marines, launched their attack. The enemy advanced directly towards the Marines in between the artillery. Batteries 5, 6, and 7 provided continuous fire at the enemy. When they were close enough, the Marines joined in with their muskets. The constant fire from artillery and Marines caused mass confusion among British troops. Sir Edward Peckenham was killed about 400 yards from the Marines. The battle only lasted 25 minutes, but the casualties were enormous. 291 British were dead, and 1,262 wounded. 484 of them surrendered. The United States faced 7 dead and 6 wounded. The British would try one more attack on Fort St. Phillips on January 8th, but they wouldn't be successful either. The United States' successful defense against the British in New Orleans changed the war's outcome and the relationship between the two countries. Historian George Don states, quote, The military prowess of America now appeared far more substantial, and this new assessment would help alter relationships between the two countries from then on. Britain and America through two centuries never fought each other again. The battle at New Orleans contributed to bringing about a remarkable new relationship. Thus, even though the battle occurred after the peace treaty was signed, it played a major role in winning the peace that followed. Unquote. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we finish the War of 1812 and provide some statistics about the war. If you like what you're hearing, Check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.